Howdy Wild Detectives. Thanks for coming out on this gorgeous night. I am so excited you're all here. I am Logan Cure. This is Inner Moonlight. We are presented by the Writer's Garret the second Wednesday of every month. So a little bit about how tonight is going to go. We are going to hear from our feature, Bruce Bond, who I'm super stoked about. There will be a brief intermission. During that intermission, I will ask you if you want to be on the open mic list. It's a short list. It is one poem per person. So if you have a poem in your pocket or like on your phone and you're not really sure if you want to be on the list, I'll come and lightly pressure you. So tonight we're going to hear from Bruce Bond. Bruce Bond is the author of a staggering 30 books, including most recently Plurality and the Poetics of Self, Words Written Against the Walls of the City, Scar, Behemoth, The Calling, and Liberation of Dissonance that came out this year in 2022. Uh, his work has appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, including seven editions of Best American Poetry. Presently, he teaches part-time as a Regents Emeritus Professor of English at the University of North Texas and performs classical and jazz guitar in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Please welcome Bruce Bont. Yeah. Thank you, Logan. Howdy, Bruce. Okay. I'm so excited you're here. Like I said, it's a gorgeous night here at the Wild Detectives. I'm so stoked that y'all are here. I'm glad that we have some pleasant weather to listen to some fantastic poetry. Um, so without further ado, take it away, Bruce. Thank you. I'm going to start. I just got this in the mail. This is an advanced copy of something that technically is out next year, but I think it's going to be on sale next month. Uh, it's a book uh, called Invention of the Wilderness, kind of an ecological book. I know there's something counterintuitive, which is what makes the title cool. I guess there's something counterintuitive about the notion of inventing the wilderness. But if you look at the, the derivation of the, of the word uh, invention, it means to go in. So uh, much of this book is about the connection between imaginative life, going into the wilderness and creating it in a sense, participating in it, and maybe our changed relationship to it. So we don't think of ourselves simply as situated in nature or writing about nature, but becoming forces of nature and participating in it. So um, this uh, first one is called Paradise. It's a little poem I wrote for a friend of mine who um, passed away from cancer. When a tree falls and no one is there, it falls into the earth below. I hear it. I hear it again. In my last picture of Lisa, we are drinking coffee and she says, my mind keeps going off into the future. What if it is nothing? She is bald, pale as birch, and her worried beauty shadows my cup and version of that word, nothing. In a smaller picture, we are children again, almost in love, awkward with unspoken things. I thought it came to nothing, and here we are, drinking, decades later, making plans for an autumn without leaves or people. She has a fridge full of pot, she laughs, medicine. 
and I do not see behind her quick charmed eye the many trees on fire. Or if she sees, I do not hear them as she leaves for the subway tunnel, having said the thing we never said, the otherworldly in the word love that does not, cannot happen. Perhaps it did, long ago in silence, and in the sound again of branches falling where there are none at all. So this is, I guess, the primary book that I'm, I'm hoping to promote here this evening, in part because the wonderful people at Schaffner Press were so helpful in setting up this reading. This is quite an old book for me. I mean, so many of these, certainly the concerns go way back and many of the poems go way back. But this phrase, some of you might be familiar with, liberation of distance, because it's associated with Arnold Schoenberg. It's often translated emancipation of distance. Um, and in, in many ways, it's, it could be phrased as using dissonance in a way that liberates us or allowing dissonance into our life to affirm the real. What he was thinking of is that once you get used to hearing a certain dissonance, it wants to be liberated from that context into a new context where it will serve once again as a form of animating conflict or um, dissonance kind of functions as a motive in music. It's a reason to move on, if that makes sense. Uh, and it, it's a large part of its beauty. Um, I remember a, a teacher of mine talking about a certain kind of poem that had sort of sanitized reality such that it was, it was like a, a cat without claws. So music without dissonance would be like a cat without claws. Uh, this first poem I'm gonna read uh, is called Grodek. It's a little town in Poland where uh, the poet Georg Trakl lived, if you're familiar with him. Uh, an early surrealist who uh, was also a pharmacist. So when men were coming back from the war, this would be the First World War, to this little village, he would tend to them, to their needs as a pharmacist. And this is back when cocaine was freely distributed. And um, he himself became addicted to it. Um, another interesting part of his story is that his sister was a, quite an accomplished musician. And Garrett Trackle's connection to music and his love is, of music is in this poem. Grodek. When the smoke cleared and took with it the sirens and the uniforms strung across our sofas, what remained were rivers, mist, whisper as a habit, red dawn in the eyes of the sleep deprived. In the brush here and there beside the highway, the revenant scent of metal and decay. The good news was the soldiers were returning and you could find them. You could see them walk the paths of an asylums of the Southern Valley. It was here Georg Trackel, the pharmacist, writer, depressive, friend, arrived 
to administer counsel, cocaine, whatever distillate or talk to steward efforts of recovery in whom he had so little faith. Any wonder his affinity for music, the language of a faith without a language, a doctrine, a god. Only the fog that jewels the woods at night, a bone-white moon driven down the throats of the addled like a pill. Less to eviscerate a past than to let it breathe, to give it a little something for the pain. Suffering has a local address. It will tell you. It has its grodex, whose blood is less corrosive, invasive to the eye, laid in the river. Georg Trackel was a generous man. And if cocaine and the flask of ether came off his shelf too often, if the man's face took on in time the pallor of ice, do not say he failed his calling, only that he turned from one world among the many, the way a forest turns to shadows, or the shadows to men, men to the arms of silhouettes who run at dusk to meet them. Bells. Wind with barely a world in its path makes no sound. And then the hammer lifts and flutters. The one hand claps. Bronze comes invisibly to life. And the startled temple mourns the missing hand. Who here is not a child of bells? They blow to song the abstracts of men through the open garret. Who is it now, I wonder? And the bells turn back to stone. Today, I watched a movie of the killing. I thought, perhaps, it would make me wise, responsive, or in excited horror, prone to see suspicion blown into a monster. I am just one hand, after all. A man is there, I do know this, bones of light, flesh of shadow. And as the gun goes off, the wind of the known trajectory blows an abstract of men through the open lesion, who here is not a child. Fire moves through broken windows, and the figures in us, a riot, and the names get taken down or lost. Night burns, embers graze the eye, but the movie does not change. Characters are cast in bronze this time, committed, bound to mistakes they made or suffered or deepened by neglect. Those who walk the tear gas go unseen. Some are pulled aside, questioned, searched, and never found. Others hang in the heart of the bayou like bells, and no one hears. Some walk the pathless walk of bronze in the tower, forward and back, the stride of the breath and the broom and the hasp of the flag beaten into wind and cinders. However singular the bullet and path of light, the door in the body swings both ways, in and farther in. 
The banner claps the air, and somewhere men prepare the body for the viewing. Flowers release their ghost. Overhead, you hear the silence on which a music lies. It is template, hard, cold, steady as the embalmer's table. Say the window, widow is one hand, her open bed the other. The bronze that strikes her from her nightmare is the bell. I have felt my own music overfill the vessel of the killer. Whatever the misconception, it is looking for another. A word to strike, a mirror, a wall, and now the movie has come down offline. The children are sequestered. The gunmetal river goes cold. Wind, with barely a world in its path, fills and empties the needles of the valley. Where there is a breath, there is an obstacle in its path. America touches no one in particular, and so a little of all. It cracks as men in grief and office do. Every bell is two bells, one silent, the other made of words that so miss the world they whisper, look, they break us open, and then entire voices break, so full of promise they cannot find us. Lorca. If you know much about Lorca, um, you probably know that he had this theory of duende, which has no real correlative in English. The best translation is soul. Soul conceived sort of as you might conceive it in, in black culture, that is, is something that has, it's almost of the body, if that makes sense. It has a strong corporeal component to it. You feel it here. I remember um, Janis Joplin, Joplin had Duende, right? And she used to talk about how she sings from down here. I like this idea very much. Um, okay, so Lorca. You hear it best when the key turns minor and enters a field you did not know was there. But it was always there, you think, this star, day or night, this jewel in the mine, always a wilderness that pulls from earth its slow, dark, architectural progress. A boat slips beneath the harbor bridge, a letter that says, by the time you get this, I will be gone. And yet you read there some tender argument, no, that I am thinking of you, or please be not afraid. The mere mention of fear sounds its own danger alone in the harbor flagged in mist. Wherever music goes farthest, deepest, you hear this speaker trapped inside it, longing to be clear. And it is that failure that is clearest, the hesitant strength, hope, and its refusals that phrase the matter. It is the need to be there among the lost that carves the marble of all things here. That was beautiful. Um, <laughs> thank you. 
So I really uh, loved what you said about the title of liberation of dissonance and how dissonance in music motivates us to move on. And I can yeah. definitely hear that through the poems that you read. Um, and I can hear all of these like beautiful uh, phrases, language from music running through everything that you've written for the book. So tell us a little bit about the book Liberation of Dissonance. Um, I can hear I can hear threads just in those three poems, but tell us sort of big picture what the book is doing. Oh, it's difficult. <laughs> but I mean, I've said a little already. Uh, Don Ravel is a poet and a friend who wrote a beautiful preface to this, and he, he, he articulated some things that I didn't know I was doing, or you know, he made them happen uh, by virtue of his preface. But for him, I think the dissonance. Uh, in music suggests an affirmation of life because life includes suffering and not just suffering as a kind of cartoon or a representation but real suffering so he actually unabashedly uses the, the word real which I'm a fan of you know because I think we need to reappropriate that word in a, in a way that is credible uh, so dissonance represents in part that you know it's that element in life that must be seen if you're going to affirm the whole of life, if that makes sense. And, and a lot of this book is, is political. Uh, it's, a, it's about suffering that is the result of a kind of oppressive desire for sameness. Okay, yes. Does that make sense? So, yes. you know, how that rage for sameness is an insidious feature of, of just human nature. You know, it's uh, uh, deeply sad. Yes, yeah. Well, and that's certainly suggested by liberation. And I thank you for sharing with us that it's sometimes translated as emancipation. Um, I think yeah. that really gets at what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he has this uh, essay called Opinion or Insight. And uh, that's where he, that, that phrase comes from. And he's just thinking about the, the progress of harmony. So he really saw the history of music as kind of one big narrative. Uh, and you know, he came up with his way of moving music into this realm of dissonance that nevertheless maintained a heavy sense of system for him. I mean, rightly or wrongly, you know, he, wanted, he, he ushered in chaos but he wanted to frame it, you know, and accommodate it. And that is a key element of music. Music, uh, there's one uh, poem, it's about Ornette Coleman, and Ornette Coleman is associated with this movement called free jazz. But music is never just free, right? It's always about, a, it's a kind of dialogue between chaos and order. I mean, all art is, right? Um, but he was, uh, Ornette Coleman, he was able to move music in a very, very significant way into a realm, it may sound like chaos at first, but if you listen to the music long enough, you begin to perceive a new order arise out of it. And there's something very affirming about that, making that adjustment and then seeing what's beautiful there. And the thing we used to reject, we just open ourselves up. We see that it's not a threat, it's not, just the dissolution of us. It includes us, it's about us. Yes, yeah, um, that's beautiful. And, and it reminds me that poetry works that way too, right? 
um, I'm also a teacher and sort of endlessly explaining that free verse is is indeed free. Yeah. Uh, but the poem teaches you to read it. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> T.S. Eliot preferred the phrase freed verse. So it's very specific that you are freed from. Liberated verse. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so one of my other questions for you is you have written so many books um, and, yeah. and the poem and the book are two very different things. So I think, you know, kind of your two flavors of poetry collection is I wrote these poems in these years and I put them in a collection or um, sort of the concept book. Yeah. Where where the book is all you know, all the poems are concerned with a particular thing. Right. Um, so h how do you arrive at a book? Oh, I was just asked this. Uh, uh, my, yeah, there's one of my ex students. The people want there, to wonder, know. The, the wonderful <laughs> yeah, Steve Kilpatrick was just asking me this, um, and it, it's some books. They definitely do come out of. Um, being haunted, I guess, by a certain theme or problem, or uh, and maybe you know my reading is is key, and I read, I read a lot of things that aren't poetry. I mean, I need to in order to re-enter a poem. I, I I need to keep that going. So I, uh, for me, I, I like reading, you know, strange philosophy, that, and then sort of the challenges to find the immediacies or, or what's at stake, you know, in some of these wonderful liberating ideas. So I read a lot of Levinas, for instance, he's inspired a lot of my work because his standard for otherness, which he associates with the ethical, uh, ethical relations and an ethical way of being in the world, his standard for otherness is just so high. You know, I mean, it's, it's not part of a general popular discourse. It's just, it's so, it's just so strange and uh, challenging. And uh, see, I, I like the, I think of the kind of philosophy I read and, and the kind of psychology I read and the kind of poetry that I most enjoy is all being very related disciplines about the human condition. Yes, yeah. And you're absolutely right that um, poetry is a place where you can bring together all of those different threads. Poetry, I think, is a unique genre and that you can include your music yeah. and your history and your That's psychology yeah. and <laughs> it's about everything yeah it's kind yeah. of great that way it's it's great there are a lot of things it doesn't do well but yeah it's it's good at striking conversations across boundaries whatever those are yeah beautiful beautiful i am ready to hear some more poems are you us some more oh yeah sure um so this um if i were to talk about the theme of this book behemoth Actually, the, the, the there's a long sequence that is in part about anti-Semitism, um, the Holocaust. My, my wife comes from a family where there are a lot of people who died in the Holocaust. Uh, and so my in-laws are in that. I won't read that. It's a long <laughs> cycle. But the, the title is actually a reference to the book of Job. So the, the, it's like, this is the answer to the problem of evil. You know, why did you do this, God, right? And he says, how dare you? Look at what I made. I made the behemoth, you know? So the behemoth becomes kind of an image of, of or a testament to the power of creation, whether you believe in God or not, just the wonder of you know, being here, you know, in this amazing place. The same time, it's kind of a monster. <laughs> 
right? And so it, it sort of is a figure uh, that embodies this paradoxical sense of both, well, I should say wonder, gratitude, horror, all the things that go into, you know, beholding the glory of you know, what we have before us. So, and and uh, there is no real answer to the problem of evil, you know? It kind of sucks. But, yeah, <laughs> but consider the behemoth. So um, one of these, uh, I'm going to read a, a longer and a short poem. Uh, and the, the long poem is very much, well, I think it's self-explanatory, but it's very much about Keats. You know that Keats is, um, he wrote this poem called The Fall of Hyperion, and he also wrote a, a related poem called Hyperion. He never finished these poems. I think it, and it was about the death of, of gods. Uh, and uh, one of the curious lines in it is where he talks about the superannuations of sunk realms, that's a quote. You know what that refers to? It's, it's the depleted retirement funds of the gods, which is just so strange. It's so wonderfully strange. Um, anyway, consider it. You're writing a poem. You know, you love classical culture, you know, these allusions to gods, these stories, these poems. And now you're going to write a poem about these gods dying? You know, or because no one believes in them anymore? Where do you go with a poem like that? No wonder he never finished. It's a different, okay. Meanwhile, in, in an adjacent room, his brother is dying, right? The entire time of consumption, which he would later die of. So this is about that, swan. It's also, I think in the back of this too, and you consider all the stuff that he confronted very early in life. And yet, he's the guy who has that urn say, you know, truth is beauty, beauty, truth is all you know and all you need to know, which is, of course, utter nonsense, right? It's utter nonsense. But it grows out, if you read his letters, you find out what's going through his brain, I think. But it's like sometimes beauty just overwhelms all other sensations, right? And you just give yourself over to it. I think especially if you've just suffered so much, like, okay, just give me beauty, right? Swan, here in this writing chamber with its desk set, vase of ink, the faint depressions of the blotter lit with oil harvested at sea, our weary insomniac John Keats is not well. Though he cannot know this yet, what we know, how the story ends. He cannot see us, his future, let in a draft from the highlands and whisper of his ailment. He is too busy looking out on a world that is half dark, half garden, and a ghost reflection of the self who, mesmerized by silence, marks the dying fall of homes in an empty room. To hear, in words, the emptiness. It is a piece he will not finish, though he works night into day, talking with disconsolate gods, bereft of acolytes and a sense of humor. That said, his speaker, our sole avatar, barely speaks. Though all the pantheon is there on the vine-beleaguered portico, each a scrap of marble in a plot whose civic matrix is dismantled, whose mortar mists at daybreak where cobbles of the other world jewel against the bright onset. It will be life to see them, he writes, 
But what he sees, he sees through, like a window laid across a stand of oak whose unheard tunes are sweeter, clearer, he tells himself, whose story comes to a stream made of glaciers and decline, Goliaths of weather and the long, clear pull of its turbulence downstream. Once, men walked across the water and children followed and the willows leaned down like lions to the lyre. Women traced their silhouettes on the walls of caves and when they died, the shadows remained and drew our shadows in kind to them, as if our death had met its match. The bodies of the killing fields would not be still and rose the way tidal waters do and exalted tones and their horrors rise undaunted. Iron from the veins of leopards poured over the lips of cataracts and the names they bore were a river's name and their God a river still. When I was a child, I had a puppet, a lion with one eye his ear eaten by rain or rot or some corrosive creature. A castaway I found in the bushes, or he found me, his face half alive, the other half blind, and I laid my voice in the darker portion. What was that you lost, my friend uh, leaned in to ask me, that key to the boathouse, life before life, that lamentation in the ocean. He was talking about a dream I had, the childhood I left, my other father, and the small red pail of sand, and then I woke. A wave rolled through my chest. It broke, and in the silence roared. Tonight, in the mausoleum stillness, a day burns down its house of glass and calls it progress. My wife lights a Shabbat candle, and I see the smoke her mother saw, the ovens of the war years, their ecstasies of filth and cinder. Beauty overpowers all other considerations, the writer writes. And then he hears a gold bell in a nearby room and answers with bowls of mangoes and broth and towels to wipe the discharge from his brother's lip. His gods grow more and more contagious, their air metallic, the verses more difficult to finish. Though he swears an oath, he breathes into the corpse of earth to swell the core to raise a fountainhead of dolls and monsters. Terror writes what terror burns each dawn and the sun gods die and the sky moves still. Clouds tear like hands from a helicopter rope. So what is lost or spent? What superannuations of sunk realms? What gems inside the marble forehead of the heroine, if not the theater dark that holds her to us. Ask the man who coughs blood into his brother's name. Blood dries, the name continues. In a day or two it pales, it dries all things drawn through the mirror of each other. Remember me, says the movie that cannot move beyond its dull montage, stone lion, stone lamb, stoned retirement home and boy who is its gardener. You could live this way for years in a graveyard of the stars writing melancholic odes with real wine in them. A drowsy numbness could pain your sense until one night in the labyrinths of Rome you lose your way. The cafe awnings fold their wings in the cold facade and a downpour drowns your coat and hair. When a god dies, what then? 
You could submit to starvations and bleedings, the terrible science romance is made of, and find comfort in the company, and why not? Go on, make them fabulous, these Athenas of dying of neglect, their robes and ribbons luxurious as rope that floats above the factories. Make them idols out of beach glass and expenditures of breath grown deep and weary from the journey. Sometimes the more merciful view is a porch in ruins, the beauty of decaying things. On the far side of the world, there is a word for that, for rust that eats across the signage, a word for the heads of flowers bent beneath the burden of light, for the brittle legs of bees, green striations of a stream gone dry, a word for the scratch of hieroglyphic on the gold plate tomb that no one understands, a word for the father when he has no words, but looks out on the sea with a voice that makes no sense, and yes, I nodded, yes, the red door of the eye swings wide to say, you too, come, sit, I can't sleep either, dead lions, patriots, letters on the far side of the suffering that makes them sing, come, put a little music on, or not, you are not alone, you with your gash of diamonds bound in a common fabric, a man's infection lies inside you, in petals of ash and abandoned pages, the disinfected bucket and scanned line, the sharp green scent of lime on things that go unspoken, in you the decomposition that winter brings to an end, and in the sap that aches one April over breakfast, you, you, in the dinner past in silence, the distant shrieking of a swan. Tower bells beat the door of the sky and so call to those who hear the toll of marriage or mourning or time passing before the bronze goes still. Today, I hear all those calls at once leaning from the chamber, a rapture that bears I know a given message, though I like to think the music has its own. So too, its own clouds swept through the parapet where the temple scaffolds rise and fall over the face and stones of a great design, the one I never see. I, a mongrel, married a Jew. My table crowned in candles whose light and honey smokes the air, and they are not mine, these dispensations echoed at the altar, not mine the music of my home, though it marries me to the silence after. Call me a follower then, a mute observer, a bit of stone against the larger burden. I married a battered child, the girl in her broken by a stranger again and again, like a wave inside a shell. Whenever I hear bells, I think of this, unable to say what needs to be said or hear the broken silence when it speaks. Nights, I am awakened by her breathing and still, I dream, still her heart beats, its bronze against a sky I cannot enter. And when she moans, I shake her gently. It's okay, I answer. That's all it takes, a stage whisper. And she mumbles, thank you, love you, without opening her eyes. So my next question is always, what's next? 
I started getting into writing collaborative books with other poets I admire. I don't know if anyone here knows the poet Dan Beachy Quick, but I wrote a poem. Uh, uh, it's, it's a book-length poem with him where we alternated, and I did something similar with the poet David Keplinger. Okay. Um, and they're very different, but, and we weren't sure where we were going. You know, this was kind of evolving via conversation. I didn't realize that this would become a kind of interesting genre to a lot of presses, and there are some journals now that specialize in this really? collaborative concept, yeah, okay. of writing a poem. But I think of poems, all poems, as collaborative. You know, they're all kind of conversations with other, if not poems, you know, other bits of language, right? And, uh, and so one ended up being kind of almost therapeutic for us. And, and so Dan came up with the title Therapon, um, and he was thinking of like the Greek meaning of, of therapy, which is, it's a kind of cure, right? Um, and uh, then the other book, The Mirror Patch the, the Telescope, that kind of became about connection. It's, I guess, obvious when you have a conversation book or a, or a collaborative book that it would, to some degree, be a book about collaboration or conversation, yes. right? And so this was about proximity and how that affects the way we exchange. So um, it started, that, that's why the mirror, the patch, the telescope, the, the, uh, we started with, uh, I think the, it was, we started with like a distant relationship. I think it was like emails. Yeah, okay. that's what, and, then, and then voicemails and then notes. So yeah, so it was about, that okay okay and then you know in both cases we just started and we didn't know where we were going but that's what kind of evolved and it was exciting when we discovered that so that's those were i guess you could call them sort of concept books but yeah the yeah. concept evolved and um yeah i've got some others too yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you want to so, tell me about more of them i, I would know. love to hear it Sometimes I don't know what, I mean, it might be something that's kind of formal or, you know, just sort of a spirit of a book that seems to hold it together and then you discover it later on. So uh, one was just taken, um, entitled Vault. Okay. And uh, that title was actually one of the many suggestions by the judge who picked the book. And, okay. and I like that one because Vault implies both, you know, a kind of enclosure and a leaping Right, or um, I was actually thinking primarily when I used that title for a poem of the architectural feature in churches. Oh yeah, you know where you look up, right? So I think I, I, I mean, if I can say there's a theme for these in general, um, that one too is about the need for connection and and all that problematizes it, and and in some senses too, because the vault is such a private space, and this is important if we're going to have connection that is genuine, uh, this is a big theme in the Levinas, it's recognizing that there's a hell of a lot you will never know, right? Yes. That, that, that we, you know, the other there is radical. That's sitting there right before you, that face, is the portal to something that you can never sort of master in your own mind by way of some design, right? It's just, it's essentially that liberating slash unsettling 
right? In, yeah. in such a wonderful way. I think all these books are sort of about that. I think they're all related to Levinas. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so much more forthcoming from Bruce Pond. Um, will you close us out with one final point? Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, this is called Blackout Starlight, and I was raised in L.A., so this is a poem for the, for the homeless of L.A., and um, well, I have people from my high school actually work with them. I have such admiration for, for those people who, who are out there. I'm just writing poems, you know, these people are out there making a huge difference in a very immediate way. But at any rate, the, if you know something about the history of LA, you know that the homeless population is constantly being displaced. Uh, and it, it, such that just existing is against the law. Like there's no way of avoiding breaking law. So this is called Blackout Starlight. At the base of a leg of smoke on which the heaven of Los Angeles stands, a man is burning the unidentified remains of a chair in a can, and his shadow grows tall against the warehouse wall behind his eyes. Another man joins him, and in the distance you hear a siren, a dog, and then another, and the whispered sea of the interstate coming ashore. In other words, a kinship of silhouettes and voices falls over the talk and inner lives of those who otherwise might appear left out of the larger conversation. I read once, fire came to the center of our social circle for this. Before it cooked our meats, it held our fascination. It held us. And then the howling, and a man shares a hit of smoke with a man swept with the others from the center of town. The new money is buying up the old, and the rent that sweep beds from these apartments, and the mission is full, and the flames keep breaking some local ordinance to pieces like a chair. Just today, the one man sat through a sermon in a parking lot because it came with coffee and a roll in a city of angels that had no suffering, only strangers to their experience on earth. It felt like a story told over the fire, the stars taking aim among the copters with their needles of light. Something in the sermon's voice rose with a clarity foreign to smoke. It helps some. The coffee is hot, and the new money keeps burning a hole in the pockets of Los Angeles, where land is cheap and people move along a, a step ahead of the law and the seasons. Welcome to paradise, says the postcard of a beach in the fire. And as it crumples, nothing changes, nothing moves in a dress like that, where the streets are swept each morning by machine. There is a better world, surely, and the darkness of the warehouse wall ebbs a little as the ashes rise. Whatever the medication, it is always wearing off. Whatever the angel dust that falls from the construction, power is always hungry, thin, gone the way of white powders in the high rise and the air above the earth movers coming to rest. Any pretense here of the whole picture gives way to the perspective of a man or two. Beside the empty warehouse, words and silences get exchanged like cash buying cash, and the larger conversation is less a conversation than the ghost of elsewhere thumping in a black limousine the windows of the mirror of our own 
exclusion. One's own hand could be shaking for some unspoken reason. One man could hear the siren spread dog to dog and laugh with another, and what the hell? Time to put the whole enchilada in. The chair and the missing man had held, the leg with its claw, the arm curved like a broken overpass. Time for the part that never was a chair. It is now. Fire makes it so. And so mails the postcard back to where it came from, to St. Peter at the electric gate, beyond the local ordinance that is the space around a heaven that keeps it safe. Put it in, the angel and the machine and the ball that drops through the wall of the tenement, the bright flock that scatters like a window. Put them all in, the way a dog puts it all in, the cry we call his. Though something the size of the whole picture is happening to him, echo untouched by echo, throat by throat. Something of the whole heart cut out of hiding, the deep red part hurled into the dark like meat to the wall, and the shadows roar. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. I, mean, I enjoyed looking at these wonderful people. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That was gorgeous. I'm so glad we could do this. Oh, good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so one more time for Bruce Bond. Yeah. All right, we have reached intermission. Buy a book, buy a drink, tip your bartenders, and for my podcast listeners, I will see you next month.